This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Amen. Let's turn to the Lord's Word, if you would. Remain standing, and if you have a copy of God's Word with you, you can open to the book of Galatians in the New Testament. In our Black Pew Bibles, that's page 972, Galatians chapter 1. Well, as Luke mentioned in his prayer, I know the events of past week are on the minds of many. I, I did decide to stay in the book of Galatians. We only got in one message. So. And I do think that some things Paul says here really can't speak to us uh, in the moment. So we'll start again this morning in, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is what I'll read. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Say with me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of it to your hearts. Lord, bless your word now. Cause your word to produce in our hearts, Lord, faith, love, obedience, repentance. Meet us, God, in, in your mercy and kindness, giving to each of us what we need from your everlasting word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Well, some 13 to 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, you might remember that Paul and his dear friend Barnabas, they traveled to four cities in the southern Galatia region, an area we call southern Turkey today, and there Paul preached the gospel. He preached the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on, and the merits of Christ alone. And he preached this word to people who were pagans, people who were worshipers of pagan gods like Zeus and Hermes. And while in one of those cities, uh, uh, some Jewish uh, leaders came down from Jerusalem, uh, they thought what Paul was saying was heresy. They did not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-promised Messiah. And in their zeal, what they did is they turned the crowds uh, up against uh, Paul and Barnabas, and they bludgeoned Paul with stones, you might remember, and they drug him out of the city and left him on the ground out there bloodied, believing him, thinking him to be dead, and thinking that while they did that, the entire time they were serving God. And what happened next? You might remember what happened next. What happened next was unbelievably, by the grace of God, Paul gets back up and he goes into the city again. <laughs> and he continued to preach the gospel there. And some of these people, pagan Gentiles, idol worshipers, 
came to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God who died for their sins and was raised from the dead. Enough so that sometime later, not too much later, Paul and Barnabas returned to each of those cities and there were enough believers there for them to uh, appoint elders in each one of those cities and establish local churches. Amazing, amazing. How on earth did this happen? When you think about the darkness that pervaded there, when you think about the hostility against Paul, the pervasive uh, uh, hostility against them in the cities, the resistance, how do these things happen? It happens, beloved. It happens in the darkest of places because the gospel which Paul preached, the gospel which we preach has come down to us, is not man's made-up ideas. The gospel is a divine message. It is a message of supernatural origin and supernatural power when God deems in his grace and mercy that it's a moment that he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will bring about fruit. It happens, and it happens without laser light shows, (laughs) without sound systems, without smartphones, Without church buildings, without air conditioning, it could happen with some of those things, but it doesn't need those things for it to happen. It happens because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe, right? And Paul wrote later to another city than whom he had visited, similar to these cities, pagan worshipers, and as he thinks back about his visit there, he writes to the church at Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When God wants that to happen, it will happen. And the result was, he says down in verse 9, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Yes, it happens, beloved. And this is why it still happens. And this is why it can still happen in the darkest of places. Why it can still happen in areas like the Bay Area. Why it can still happen in places like the Middle East and nations that are closed to Christianity, officially speaking. And this is why it can still happen in the hardest and darkest of hearts. So never lose hope in the capacity of the gospel to transform an individual. Should God will it, should God graciously in his love empower it at that moment. I heard the gospel many times before the moment came that God empowered it with his spirit and with his grace, you know. I think we're often tempted to believe that what takes place in church gatherings like this and in a worship service like this is strictly a human event. And I would immediately say in some cases it is strictly a human event. But where the true gospel is, is upheld, where the true gospel is maintained and preached, divine things can happen. Supernatural things are happening. Divine power is at work. It's not always visible. It's not always visible. But God saves no other way. Scripture says no other, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And Paul says the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, it's idiocy to those who are perishing. 
but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It happened then, and it happens now. And it's been happening for 2,000 years. Well, going back to then, going back to then, soon after those churches were established, you remember that Paul received news. Paul received news about a year and a half later or so that those churches were being visited by Judaizers. These were different Jews. These were Jews that did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, not the same as those who stoned him, per se. They did believe that faith in Jesus was necessary, and it was good, but it was not good enough. If, if you were here last week, you remember that. And if you weren't last year, week, you should maybe hear that first message. It provided a background for this whole book. And so they taught that faith in Jesus is necessary, is good, but you need to add to your faith in Jesus obedience to the law of God and the badges of, of, of Jewish culture and, and the way of life, uh, things such as circumcision and the Sabbath of servants and keeping of, of, of various dietary laws and so forth. They, they, they explicitly said that they, they must keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Remember what John Stott, saw, John Stott said, let Moses finish what Jesus began. You know, uh, that's, That was their point of view. And so the, what happened is these Galatian churches were beginning, to, were beginning to agree with that. Amazingly, within such a short time, they were beginning to embrace these ideas. And Paul will say to them, you're deserting God, you're deserters. And so he responded with this letter, which we now call the book of Galatians. And we looked at a, an overview of what he's saying in last week. And as he begins, you notice that he immediately launches into a defense of himself. I'm an apostle, he says, and the gospel. In fact, the first two chapters will be devoted largely to those two things. He defends the messenger and the message. Why? Because they are intertwined. Because God has chosen to save people through the preaching of his word through other people. Paul would say to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.21, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God, here it is, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, as the world sees it, to save those who believe. It's pleased God. God doesn't send angels. He doesn't send experiences. He sends messengers, his messengers, with the gospel. And so they're intertwined. And so Paul defends himself, and he defends the gospel even right as he begins. And in these first five, five verses, uh, what Paul sets forth are four qualities of the gospel he preaches. It is a gospel of divine origin. He says, not from men nor through man, and so forth. It is a gospel of divine blessing, grace and peace to you from God, not from us. It is a gospel of divine um, love, he says, who gave himself, verse four, for our sins. And it's a gospel of divine deliverance, to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is do something a little different. I'm going to go out of order. I'm going to do the first one and the fourth one this morning, in part because I think uh, they, they help clearly speak a little bit to the moment in which we find ourselves. So let's, let's begin with a gospel of divine origin. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, ancient letters 
uh, usually began with just three basic components, the sender, the recipient, and greetings. And so if Paul, all, all Paul had to say is, Paul, to the churches in Galatia, greetings, right? Uh, and any expansions upon those three things uh, often signaled things he is going to address later in the body of the letter, right? And he expands it here, all right? And notice how he begins immediately. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so he immediately begins to defend himself in the message. Uh, there's one way to undermine the message, and that is you undermine the messenger, right? If you can discredit the messenger, you begin to discredit the message. This is one of, one of the enemy's tactics, and it's used all the time. If you could put in the public eye uh, the weaknesses of, of, of God's messengers and spokesmen and so forth, then you could begin to undermine confidence in the message that they're bringing. And so Paul has to immediately defend his role. He says, I am an apostle. And I think most of you remember that the New Testament uses that word apostle in a, mo in a generic general sense and also in a very specific official sense. The word apostle itself simply means a sent one, a messenger. And here and there in the New Testament, the word apostle, small a, is used for people who are messengers from one church to another. But the New Testament also uses the word apostle with a capital A, if you would, in a very specific, official way. To refer to whom? To refer to the 13 apostles, the 12 plus Paul, uh, who were official messengers, who were set apart by Jesus Christ himself. To be one of those capital A apostles, you needed to have been an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. And this Paul says, I am. I may not have been with them when it happened. I may not have been with them those three years the Lord walked this earth, but I am also an apostle. And so he became an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then he, he, he uses these three prepositional phrases to, to stress again the divine origin of his apostleship. And each one begins with a negative form. You heard it there, right? Not, nor, but. <laughs> and that's really kind of striking uh, the way Paul begins his letter like that. He says, not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Very different from the openings of his other letters. Usually Paul included some, some uh, praise or some giving of thanks. I give thanks to God always for you, or you know, I, I think of you often and frequently. Uh, even to the church at Corinth. <laughs> and many of you who know your Bibles, you know if there was a church that had problems, it was the church at Corinth, right? If there was ever a church he could skip saying, I give thanks to God for you, probably Corinth would have been it. But even to them, he says, I give thanks to my God for you. None of that here for the Galatians. No, very striking. Paul's, Paul's ready to make clear and, and ready to begin to address this problem. We can only imagine the kind of things they were saying because we don't know exactly. There's no quotes 
uh, regarding the things they said, but we get a lot of insight uh, from what's called mirror reading. When you read what he says, as you begin to understand what kind of things they were saying, you know, uh, understanding what they were attacking. And they were, they were addressing, to some degree, the source of his calling and his authority, therefore, as an apostle. And, you know, didn't Paul come from the church of Antioch? He's not from the church of Jerusalem. Who made this guy an apostle? Why are you listening to him, you see? And we said that this was most likely, I take it to have been written before the council in Jerusalem when that question of do you have to become a Jew also to be safe with God before that was officially addressed. And so they were attacking his authority. And he says, listen, my role as an apostle came about not from men, meaning the origin of my calling was not from human beings. That's not where it came from nor through, he uses a different preposition, nor through man, not from man in general, and nor through a man. No council voted for me, no, no, nobody, nobody laid their hands on me. My calling, he says, came, how? Through, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so he is stressing again the divine origin of his calling. And in the Greek syntax here, by, by virtue of connecting both God the Father and Jesus with that one preposition through, by joining them together in that way, what Paul is doing, he's, he's stressing in a very subtle way the, their equality. Jesus Christ and God the Father working together and again, he's stressing and emphasizing the divine nature of his call. I was made an apostle directly, directly through the workings of God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, any true pastor, any true elder can say the first. Ultimately, our calling comes from God. But no one can say the second, nor through a man. Yes, it does, because the church affirms the calling, and people do lay hands, and in some circles, churches do vote, and, and so forth. But Paul says, it didn't come from humanity, nor did it come through any council or any individual. It came from God himself, he says. This is a unique calling that Paul had, and so he's saying that my, my message and my calling have a supernatural origin. Um, he's referring to what? We take it that he's referring to the fact that he saw Jesus Christ, that he met him on Damascus Road. Remember that Jesus just inserted himself into his life and blinded Paul with that blinding light and spoke to him. And that moment and the events that follow right after that was his calling to become an apostle. And he will, he will repeatedly repeal to this. Look down at verse 11 and 12. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This man whom you are hearing here, in, who wrote this to you and me, he met Jesus of Nazareth after his death and resurrection. And so he speaks with that kind of authority. What he speaks is the revelation of God. 
in his letter to the Romans, which would come later, in Romans chapter 1, he begins this way, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is not some man's philosophy. Uh, these aren't uh, ideas from men about God. These are words from God about men <laughs> and how we, can, how we can be saved and understand the nature of humanity and eternity and where we're all heading and what happens after death. And so this is the gospel of God, says Paul. Now, why is this important? It's important to understand the basis of religious authority. Who has the right to blind your conscience? Because that can be abused. Who has the right to bind your conscience? Who has the right to say, on what basis can anyone say, that's right, that's wrong. You're right, you're wrong. That's true, that's false. Who has the authority to say, if you believe that, you are forgiven. You will enter eternal life and be with God forever. And who has the authority to say, that's not enough. It's good to believe that, but you must also dot, 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 dot. On what basis? Who has the authority to bind our conscience to say this leads to eternal life and this leads to eternal damnation, you see? This is a very important question, right? And so Paul reminds us that he was a man who suffered greatly. He was a man who was called directly by the living God. And the fact that his own conversion and his testimony is a very strong, strong evidence of the reality of the resurrection. Paul was a monotheist. He believed in one God. Um, he believed in, in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he believed that the law of Moses was the way. And suddenly, what is he saying? He's saying that he, we must worship Christ as the Son of God. And that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and that we must not add the law to our faith in Jesus Christ, that that's enough, you see. And so this has to do with the question of authority. We, listen, we believe the message of God's messengers because God himself called them, set them apart, revealed himself to them, and spoke through them. We believe the message of God's messengers. And that's what you have. When you and I read Galatians and we study it together, what we are hearing is not just the voice of Paul, but the voice of Christ, the voice of God. And it will bear witness to your own soul. It will bear witness to your own conscience if indeed you are a Christian because the Holy Spirit is in you and he himself bears witness to you that this is truly the word of God, you know. A lot of different answers, of course, to where to authority and where does authority come from and who has the right to tell us what's right and wrong and there's I don't want to get into all the philosophy and all the different uh, you know arguments of rationalism empiricism and so forth but I will say this that the most popular answer today to that question is uh, lies in subjectivism you know who has the right to bind me my conscience tell me what's right and wrong me that's who has the right my feelings we look inward now subjectivism do you feel the same now as you did when you were five? Does truth change with you? Will you feel the same when you're 60 as you do when you're 30? And so today, the, 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 the basis of authority is the individual. The changing, confused, darkened, fallen into sin individual. 
And Paul says, listen to me, he says. Listen to me. My calling came from a supernatural source. It came from the living God and his son whom I saw raised from the dead. And so this is why amazing conversion stories still happen today. And they're happening right now somewhere in the world. And I would pray would happen right here. And we've heard some here, and we've baptized people here. Amazing accounts of what? How grace found them, you know? Why? Because the gospel is not a human idea. No one would have written it up. It is a message of divine origin. And now we look down to verse 4, skipping the second and third quality of, of the gospel. Is, he says that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us. In other words, here's the purpose clause. In order to deliver us, that is us, his people, uh, from the present evil age. In other words, the Son of God came into this world in the incarnation, the eternal one, came into this world on a rescue mission. He came to rescue, your translation might say. He came to deliver. He did not come simply to assist us. <laughs> you know, it's not Jesus, some of Jesus and some of you. He didn't come to come alongside you and to help you help yourself. <laughs> he came to rescue. He came to deliver. And this, in addition to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and is himself the Son of God, is just simply another way of distinguishing him from all other religious leaders and teachers. You, have, you might have Buddha, you have Muhammad, you have Confucius, and people would stand before, before them and call them teacher, my teacher, and then they died and stayed in the grave. And of Jesus Christ, we also can say teacher, but of no one else do we stand and say Savior. Savior, rescuer, our deliverer, you say. He came into this world, beloved, to rescue, to deliver, not merely to teach or merely to be a moral example of some kind, as Paul would later say in 1 Timothy in chapter 1, I think it's verse 15, it's a, it's a faithful saying, worthy, right, of all agreement, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then he added his own personal anecdote, of which I am number one. <laughs> I'm the worst, he said. And so he came to rescue. We need to remember that. I don't know if you, recently you've been seeing, like a month ago or so, some of, the, some of these extraordinary floods in different parts of the world. You know, we've had some here in the, in, in the States, but I saw some, uh, some in, in Greece and so forth. And, I was, and also in Spain, because we have churches there in Spain. So those videos I went to watch to see what was going on with these floods in Spain. And this water was rushing and it was taking away cars. And I see this guy fall in. He's just scooting down the, the middle of the street. Now listen, when someone is being taken away in some to torrential current, you don't throw them a manual on how to swim against the current. You don't stand there and say, look at me, I'm an example. What do you do? You dive in and rescue. And that's what Christ came to do. To do something that accomplishes a deliverance. Not merely teach or be an example. 
but to dive into this darkness, dive into this fallen world, and carve out for himself a people for his own possession, rescue people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. To rescue you, if you're a Christian. Rescue us from what? Well, the how is next week, verse 4, the first half he gave himself for our sins. The what does he deliver, rescue us from? To deliver or rescue us from? Now, it's interesting, because you might expect to rescue us from the condemnation of our sin or from the wrath of God that's coming. All those are true, right? But he, he, he uses this interesting phrase, to rescue us, to deliver us from the present evil age. Hmm. He's not just talking about personal redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He's, there's something bigger that he's referring to here. So what does he mean by the present evil age where he's rescuing his people out of the present evil age? We need some background. I need a few minutes, so put your thinking caps on just for a few minutes. And then keep them on, by the way, okay? Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't take them off again. Um, and the reason we need background, I want you to understand this, is because... What he says here, like I said, he's already previewing things that are coming, and this idea of an age, uh, this, this is foundational to the way he argues throughout the letter, okay? And in other places, too. So let me say this much, okay, this morning, that old, the Old Testament, early on even, and especially later, the prophets, would, would speak of two ages, Early on, some of the writings and, and a prophet like Daniel would speak of the latter days, uh, the last days, the, now, this, these days and the last days. And then after the time of the prophets, uh, in the intertestamental period, rabbis began to use the, the, the phrase of this age, the age to come, this age, the age to come. Now, what they said is not Scripture per se, but they're reflecting on what the Scripture did say in the Old Testament, and then Jesus himself takes up that language because it's accurate. And then Paul takes up that same sort of framework, this age, the present age, and the age to come. And the word age is used sometimes in such a way that you could almost substitute it with the, world, the word world. There's this world, and what that means is, is the, the world as it is now, fallen in rebellion against God, a dark place. And then there is the what? The world to come, the next world, the recreation. So to speak of this age is to speak of this world, or this world is to speak of this age, and the age to come is to speak of the world to come, and so forth. Jesus spoke this way, and so did Paul and, and some of the other New Testament writers, and some of the classic texts are Luke 20, for example, Luke 20, in verse 34, <clears throat> Jesus was posed this trick question, you know, if a woman marries someone and then he dies and then she marries his brother and he dies and marries his brother, he dies and he dies, he dies, you know, who's going to be her husband? Gotcha, Jesus. And Jesus said, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy, he's looking at them, <laughs> Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection. The resurrection age. 
neither marry nor are given in marriage. This age, that age. Another example is Matthew 12, 12, 32. Jesus says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, in that context, he says, will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Then there's Matthew 28. Uh, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of what? This age. So there's this, this age, age to come. This age, age to come. And Paul also speaks in those terms. And this is simply a way of speaking about the way things are now is this age. And it's been that way since when? Since the fall of man in the garden. This age. And the way things will be in the messianic age, in the age of the new heavens and the new earth in the future. This age is characterized by certain things in Scripture, and the age to come is characterized by other things. They're opposite. This age is characterized repeatedly as an age marked by sin and death, disease, corruption, brokenness, imperfection. Pain, sorrow, loss, wickedness, violence, destruction, separation and alienation from God, blindness, fallen humanity, living in jealousy, envy, and hatred, and harming one another. Basically characterized by all the stuff you get in your news feeds. That's this age. And this age is also finite thank God. This age is also an age of promise and anticipation. But the age to come is the messianic age in its fullness. It's, a, it's, a, it's an age characterized by life, by peace, shalom, wholeness, resurrection, endless life, renewal, beauty, harmony, righteousness, communion with God and with others. The prophet spoke of that age, of the, the age to come also as an age of fulfillment. And it is not finite, it is everlasting. Everlasting peace and renewal, all things made right. Something that aches in all of our hearts, huh? To see things made right. And no, they cannot be changed ever again. Well, this is a description of how the prophets and Jesus and New Testament authors view all history, who would say, even into eternity, this age, the age to come. But then, what we read in the New Testament is that this age and the age to come were not simply consecutive. But that's what the Bible up to this point had communicated. There's this age, and then this age, what, ends? And then we start the Messianic age, the age to come. That's the picture that you get. But the astonishing thing that happens and comes to us from the New Testament, it comes especially from the pen of Paul, is that through the death and then the resurrection of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, what happened is the power 
to some degree of the future, the power of the age to come, which is an age of what? Resurrection life. That, that, that power came into the present, and the present didn't end. It continues. The present age of fallenness and sin and brokenness continues its course, but the future age is broken through, uh, in, has come through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all who are united to him, uh, as the author of Hebrews says, have tasted of the powers of the age to come. We are tasting the power of the age to come, the future. And that's what it means to be born again. It's not to simply mentally adhere to a, uh, a religion or some doctrinal statement. It's to have the life of the future, spiritual life, break into the present, into your heart. No one was ready for that. Those who believed in, in the resurrection, the Jews that believed in the resurrection, believe that everyone is raised at the end, not one man in the middle of it all. And then that everyone who's connected to him is spiritually united with his resurrection and are spiritually resurrected. That no one understood that. Paul said that was a mystery. He says, but this is what's happened, says Paul. He says that in so many different ways. For example, he said in Colossians 1, he says it differently, but he, using different language, but he's talking about the same categories. You, you know, well, Colossians 1.13, he, that is the Father, has delivered us, rescued us, that is us believers, from the domain of darkness, that's this age, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so Christians are those who have been uh, delivered, rescued from what? From bondage to this age. We no longer think the way we thought, the way the world goes. Our eyes have been open. We understand the power and destruction of sin in our own lives and what it did to us. And we see now the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we're freed, delivered from having to think the way people think in this age and go about our lives blindly but we still have to live in this present age as people of the future. And that's where the tension comes in the Christian life. <laughs> that's, where the, that's where the struggle and the frustration comes in the Christian life. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus, but you're not entirely new yet. And your longings are for the call for the consummation of it all. You want it in your own heart, your own lives, and your, the people you love, and you st but you, you, it kills you when, you when you live like you only belong to the present age, knowing you've been set free from it, <laughs> knowing that you no longer belong to its power, and so you, 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 you struggle. Only Christians feel like that because we live in the overlapping of these ages. One of Paul's main arguments to these people is the only way to be right with God is through the cross of Jesus. And the only way to walk with God is through the Holy Spirit. Both of these come in the new age. Both of these have come through the resurrection of Jesus. Why in the world would you want to go backwards? <laughs> Why do you want to go backwards in salvation history to a time before Messiah came 
and before his spirit was given to you. Having begun with the spirit, remember we quoted that last week, are you now gonna perfect yourself through the flesh? He says, it's, it's nonsense. It's idiocy, he says. Don't go backwards. You see, this is the only way to be right with God is through the divine power of the gospel that rescues us from the present evil age. We must still live in it, and the only way to walk in the light in this present evil age is to do so by the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. We walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And so that's really the basis of Paul's argument in this whole letter, is this whole idea of the new age has come. Uh, It's central to everything he's going to say. You know, Jesus prayed in in light of this reality, and you know it well in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 14, I have given them, his disciples, and by extension you and me, your word, and the world has hated them. There's the world. There's the, the present age. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, keep them from the evil one. Some texts say from evil. Keep them. Keep them faithful. Keep them relying upon you, Father, in the midst of evil, in the midst of the present evil age. You know, some, some, uh, some rescues, if we look at it on a personal level, some, some level, some rescues are pretty dramatic, huh? And other rescues are, are not so dramatic. Some of you grow up in church. You, you grow up with a Christian family. Somewhere along the line, uh, you came to be convinced that, that, that your faith in Christ is real, and it's your faith. And you've been born again, and you have a natural inclination, a love for God, you also feel that tension, and maybe you can't even, maybe you can't even pinpoint the moment that, that, that new creation came about in, in your life with great clarity, but you know that, it's in, that you possess that life now, the life of the future. And for others, it's, you know, it gets pretty close to Paul. <laughs> it, it's an invasion, an invasion into a heart that was dominated by some sort of idolatry, dominated by false religion and there's some dramatic conversions, but the rescue is from what? Is from being controlled by the power of and the bondage of sin in this present evil age and the condemnation of the law, which is used by God to point and awaken people. I think sometimes a, a friend of mine who passed away this year lost another band member earlier in the year who we grew up ever since we were in junior high playing music together. And he was one of the first ones to come to faith after I was converted and spent a lot of time with him. And uh, not much further after my own rescue, my own conversion. And, And when I shared it with him, eventually that rescue from this present evil age took a certain form in his life. I've shared it a long time ago here with you. And that was 
that he was completely dominated by pornography and to an extent I didn't really know as his friend growing up but he took me into his bedroom and underneath his bed he had this massive drawer just filled with different pornography and so he showed it to me we grabbed it and we took it down to the band's rehearsal studio uh, on uh, what is that Bancroft Avenue right in front of Saliander High School and uh, outside our rehearsal studio was a 50-gallon drum, and we poured all of that pornography in there and put gas on it and lit it. And he was just standing there praising God, you know. Rescued, delivered. And uh, we were right across the parking lot from an apartment complex. Someone thought, we got some real wackos here, you know. You know, some kind of flame worshipers or something. <laughs> so they call the fire department. <laughs> the fire department shows up, you know, engines, sirens, the whole thing. Here's these two guys. You know. And uh, they come up and ask us, what are you guys doing? What do you, what do you think you're doing? And we shared with them. He said, he just told his story, and I talked a few seconds about Christ, and they said, well, well, young men, let's just let it burn. We'll stand right here with you and make sure it doesn't spread. <laughs> yeah, some are like that. But let me say this. Yours, you, young boys and girls, listen. If you're a Christian, you believe in your heart that Jesus is your Savior, that he died for your sins, that he was raised for your sins, and you feel conviction because you, when you do wrong, and you, know, you believe God loves you, it, it, you, you have been delivered. It doesn't need to be dramatic. Some of them are, but none of them are any less what? Miraculous and divine. Now, before we reflect on how this should impact us today further and reflect on our current circumstances in the world in which we live, I just want to remind you, first of all, before we talk about the present, I want to remind you of the state of the world into which the Son of God came to rescue His people. Think about this, that when Jesus was born, Herod had all male Jewish boys under two years old slaughtered. That's the kind of world he came into. It still happens. But that's the world he was born into. Christ came into a world that believed that there were spirit-like forces called numinous. The Romans believed this, that controlled all sorts of things, little spirits, and they believed that the gods were in control of all their lives and all their happenings, and that's the kind of world that he came into. Christ was born into a world in which Roman citizens were entertained by watching gladiator shows where men murdered one another to make a public holiday. He came into a world where some were torn apart by beasts as theater to the adulation of crowds. He came into a world where, as a Roman citizen, a father had the power of life and death over an infant. If he wanted the baby to live, he'd put his thumb up. If he wanted, didn't want a daughter and wanted a son, he'd put his thumb down, and they'd throw that child on the, on the garbage heap. He came into a world where people were slaves, millions of them. That's the kind of world he came into. And the kind of things that we've heard about this week remind us that we are still in the present evil age. (laughs) 
the Messiah came, but we are still in the present evil age, you know. Uh, the atrocities that we've seen uh, coming from the Middle East or heard about, you know, due to the internet and due to social media and things like that, I mean, this stuff is just spreads like fire and it's put before our very eyes and in, you know, technicolor rapidly, immediately, and it gets perpetuated and spread all over. And it's shocking, I know, it's shocking, troubling to see such public displays of depravity. Uh, what darkness, we say. I'm reminding you, it has always been dark. That's the world that Christ came into out of his love and grace and mercy. Peter describes the people like that in 2 Peter as irrational animals, creatures of instinct. 2 Peter. And it's still the same way. And now will come what? Now will come, as far as we know, now will come the deaths of many civilians, non-combatants. In a ground war, people just caught in it. People who had, no, had nothing to want to do with what happened, right? But, but now they may die because this is a present evil age. This is where all these things happen. You know, I personally have not sought out a single video to watch. These things take a great psychological toll on people. I personally have no need to have images burned in my memory to convince me of human depravity. I don't need that. And some of you, I think, may need to be less of a news junkie for stuff like this. We need to be informed, but we don't need to have images haunting us over and over because we ourselves sought them out. You know, Paul would remind us, this is characteristic of the fallen world. This is characteristic of the present evil age. Uh, not in the sense that this happens all the time everywhere. Uh, not, in this, not in the sense that everyone is as evil as they could possibly be all the time everywhere. No, that's not happening by God's grace. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> but in this sense, that this kind of depravity dwells in everyone and there but for the grace of God go I. Right? But I've been rescued. You've been rescued. You've been delivered. Brought out from under that control and that influence by the grace and mercy of God. So how may we respond? Just thinking about this as we finish. Well, first of all, listen. Such were some of us, right? And therefore, you start by thanking God. Thanking God He has rescued you. He's delivered you through His grace from the dominance of sin in your own hearts. And secondly, we return to a theme that we've already, we've touched on through recent pains that we weep with those who weep, regardless of their political stance. We weep with those who weep because of their, their, their humanity created in the image of God, image bearers who are dominated by darkness. That's where we were. And so we do that. We pray we pray for believers, for pastors and congregations that are caught in the middle of all this, trying to minister to the people on both sides. I've read letters from pastors on both sides of the equation, just their agony of trying to minister Christ and give hope in the midst of this whole 
this whole just horrendous time. We pray for their perseverance, their protection, and we pray. Could you pray this really? That you could pray that in the midst of all this, they would be like their Heavenly Father? How? Love their enemies? Overcome evil with good? Because that's what he told us. Because we don't accomplish good in this present evil age with more evil. We accomplish good by overcoming evil with good. Only the power of gospel can do that. Would you pray for them in that way? And would also then, we, we, we hope in God as Luke prayed. We hope in God, not in anything else, not in nations or political powers or armies. We hope in God. We trust his timing, his purposes, and his capacity to bring violence to an end. You, I suggest you go read Psalm 46. The first part says what? He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. And then later, what? Ver- later on, he says, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. Pray that he does. Pray that he does to save human lives and bring the love of Christ to them. And then, and then resist living in fear. Resist living in fear, knowing and trusting in Him, you see. It can be done. But that to do that, you'll need to set your mind on the things above, where Christ did see the right hand of God. Now, Peter, in Second Peter, again, he speaks of Lot, who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says that his soul was tormented by the wickedness he saw around him and by virtue of how God delivered him when the time came Peter says we know this what that the Lord knows how to rescue the how to rescue the godly from trials he knows when and how and then lastly listen you remember that the gospel is not strictly a human message it comes through humans like you and me but It is not strictly a human message. What is it? It is the power of God. It's the gospel, the power of the Spirit that rescues sinners from this present age and no amount of tweets or posts can do any of that. Only the gospel. If you want to see a real solution, you devote yourself to the only instrument that God wants to use. Well, May God's grace really bring an end to this and bring peace and, and bring um, the glory of Christ before others. I'm sure he's doing that. We just, we don't get to see it all, right? But let's pray that he does. Let's close our time together, bring our offerings to the Lord and finish our time together. Lord.